Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Sometimes we are spiritually frozen. This book will thaw you out and heat you up. That's what Nisim Black, rapper and businessman, says about Rabbi Mark Wilde's new book, The 40-Day Challenge. It's written in an approachable, uplifting, and accessible style. The 40-Day Challenge is an invitation for people who believe there is more to life than the daily grind. It offers readers easily digestible and compact Jewish wisdom each day for the 40 days from Rosh Chodesh Elul leading up to Yom Kippur. While written with a Jewish audience in mind, it's a text that people from any spiritual tradition can benefit from. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation talking about it. I give you Rabbi Mark Wilds. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. Oh, it's great. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's, you know, you've written a new book um, called The 40-Day Challenge, uh, and I want to get into the content of the book in a minute, but I want to just ask a few biographical questions because I think you have a really unique story in that you are a rabbi that did not start in the rabbinate. You started in law as a lawyer, and your father was a lawyer, I believe. And so how do you wind up becoming, going from uh, the law to becoming a rabbi? So uh, I appreciate you asking me that because uh, at one point I realized I thought that you know the Jewish world could probably do without one more lawyer. <laughs> we're we're kind of well represented on that front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I I entered the law because you know like you mentioned my dad was an attorney and my dad did great things with the law. Um, he represented a lot of important individuals. He's an immigration attorney. Brought lots of interesting people to this country. And I realized at some point that, you know, I would continue in that direction. And I studied uh, um, for international law as well. I was going to sort of expand the firm. Um, but then I started this beginner service in Queens, in Forest Hills, Queens, where I'm from. And it was just a... How do, how do you get to do that? Do you just go to the rabbi and say, hey, I'd like to do this for beginners? I mean, how does that come about? Yeah, so, I'll t I mean, it's a little more complicated. I went to rabbinical school. You see, in my world, Scott, a lot of people will go to rabbinical school not to be a rabbi. Okay. They, they, I went to rabbinical school just to study, to learn, because I was enthralled with Talmud, and I fell in love with my Talmud teacher uh, in college. I went to Yeshiva University, and I just wanted to stay on, and the only other program to continue on was the rabbinical school. But I wasn't going to practice. But the last year of rabbinical school, you have to do an internship. I wasn't going to do it because, as I say, I was already going to, you know, I was going to be a lawyer. But someone convinced me. They said, "Listen, get the degree. You're already there. Take an internship." So that's when I went to my rabbi in Queens, and I said, "Let me start a beginner service in Forest Hills, where I'm from." And I will never forget. Like twelve people showed up. Uh, no, I'm sorry, eight people showed up the first Saturday morning, and. I don't know what it was. I just like, I got sort of got bit by the bug. Like they was were young, well-educated, not terribly um, Jewishly educated, but in a secular sense, very well-educated young professionals who really didn't know much about Judaism. And I just loved introducing them to basic concepts of ethical monotheism. And it just clicked and I just kept going with it. And I was like, you know what? 
I think the world needs more active young Jewish professionals who care about their religion or care about their faith and probably can do with one less lawyer. You have started a pretty remarkable uh, uh, synagogue experience, Manhattan Jewish experience, where you're connecting young Jews who are largely unaffiliated or not really formed in their own tradition, and you're connecting them to a deeper practice of Judaism. And you've married over 300 couples, haven't you? Well, we've had over 300 couples that I've met and married through MJE. I don't know how many couples have actually married. I do probably, I don't know, eight or 10 weddings a year. I do a lot of weddings. Uh, and we're 23 years old. So, yeah, there's a lot that I've done. Um, but I'm very proud of that statistic. You know, uh, we're you know trying to get uh, young Jewish people to marry each other because they want to perpetuate their faith. You know, but not because we believe you know, somehow a Jew is, is, is superior to someone who isn't Jewish. But if you want to be able to carry on the Jewish traditions, then you need a Jewish family. And that's why one of the things we emphasize at MJE, and we do a lot of social programming to get young people together. Yeah. And is it, I mean, the statistics go, right? If, if someone that's Jewish intermarries, the odds are they become unobservant or, or they convert to another religion, right? It's very rare that in an interfaith couple, they wind up observe the, the kids wind up observantly Jewish. Yeah, there are a couple of exceptions here and there, but the overwhelming majority of those who intermarry basically assimilate, and that's kind of what we're fighting against. Uh, we love being integrated into the larger society, and I love having uh, friends who are not Jewish um, and colleagues and people I learn from and study with. But but if we want to perpetuate uh, the Jewish faith, we need to we need to make Jewish babies. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much demographically, right? That's what you got to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And before we get into the book, I had one more question for you, too, about being a rabbi today. I mean, I am shocked at the resurgence of anti-Semitism we've seen all over the world, and particularly in this country. I mean, it has been really uh, horrendous. And it, it's, you know, just when you think you're making progress, it's sometimes one step forward, two steps back. And I'm wondering what it's like being a rabbi right now in in this in this cultural moment where i think anti-semitism seems to me to be on the rise anti-semitism is on the rise and we're seeing a new form of anti-semitism scott when i grew up you know the anti-semites were all on the right on the extreme right they were the kkk they were the white supremacists we're now seeing a much more subtle form of anti-semitism coming from the extreme left and there are a few people that want to call it out um, but it is a very serious, it's just as ominous as the anti-Semitism on the right. And um, it masks itself as anti-Israel and just, um, you know, concerned with the uh, rights of the Palestinians and, um, and really um, looking and being critical of Israel's policies, which is a completely legitimate thing. No, no government is perfect. Um, and Israel's a democracy and it can accept criticism. But when the criticism is always directed, even when Israel is simply defending herself against rocket attacks, then you have to look a little deeper. And unfortunately, it's now coming from that place as well. And oftentimes I see that it goes from political criticism to cheap Jewish stereotypes and things like that under underlying the criticism, right? It, it quickly moves from political critique to real just anti-Semitic rhetoric. Oh, yeah. I mean, it can go very, very quickly. 
And we saw that on the streets of New York. Um, I have friends who were beaten up simply for wearing their kippah, I'm just pointing to the top of my head, wearing their yarmulke on the street. And it was somehow justified because of Israel's policies vis-a-vis um, -vis the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Um, and people like this, um, I, I thought this was not anti-Semitic. I thought this was purely anti-Israel. So why are you beating up a Jew in New York City for something that Israel did 6,000 miles away? It's obviously something deeper than a simple critique of a foreign government. You know, so a lot the listener the the audience of this podcast is pretty diverse. It's it's religious, non-religious. There's there's you know a, a Jewish contingent and and uh, you know the, a lot of listeners who are who are not Jewish. And I'm wondering what would you say that non-Jews can do in a place like North America to combat anti-Semitism? Like what is what is the how how can people be Jewish allies in the midst of this really tumultuous time? Oh, well, I think we know all the friends we can get, and um, I feel very blessed. I just went to this anti-Semitism rally in Washington, and it was uh, a beautiful rally, not only because it brought a lot of Jewish people together, but it brought members of faith from across the denominations, across different Christian groups, and it was extremely well-received. And that is very encouraging, that we're not fighting this thing alone. Anti-Semitism seems to be one of the more acceptable forms of bigotry in America. There was a huge call out um, uh, against, as there should be, against racism against blacks. There was a huge call out against the uptick in um, bigotry and, and attacks on Asians, as there should be. But I, I got to tell you, Scott, I, I, I couldn't get over the quietness of our politicians and celebrities Many of whom are Jewish themselves. Um, you know, when, when it came to when it comes to anti-Semitism in the United States or any place in the world where where it rears its ugly head, and it needs to be called out, especially because Jews are always at the forefront of every other civil rights and human rights movement. We're always there in the, calling out other forms of hate, as we should be. That's what our faith teaches us. But where is the rest of the world now when Jews are being beaten? Yeah, Karl Barth, my favorite Christian theologian, 20th century giant, said, he has a great quote. He said, anti-Semitism is the denial of the grace of God. <laughs> and it really is. I mean, and so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I hope that all of our listeners can figure out ways in which they can be allies. So you've written this book, The 40-Day Challenge. And this is really interesting because, you know, part of it seems behind the book is people, you know, in every tradition, there are people, uh, you know, that are more religiously observant or less religiously observant. And um, in, in the Christian tradition, they're often called priesters, the people that show up at Christmas and Easter, and that's it. You never see them again. Um, but you're kind of saying, look, you, you know, you, you can't expect to be able to just show up at the High Holy Days and be ready to actually get something out of this experience. It's like, you know, NFL players go to go to camp, right? I mean, they, you know, even pro athletes go to camp, right? They wouldn't just show up on day one of the season and expect that they'd be ready to play in the NFL. And so it seems like you're kind of arguing, look, if you do this 40-day challenge, if you actually spend just a few minutes a day reading some Torah and reading your reflections, that this would get you in the game for the High Holy Days. You'd be ready to actually have a really powerful experience, not just kind of pop it in sort of, you know, with tight hamstrings and, you know, like, you know, and really not ready to sort of experience um, the, 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 these traditions for what they could really mean. 
Yeah, first of all, that was a great commercial for the book. <laughs> no problem. I mean, that's exactly what the book is about. Jews just sort of show up on the high holidays and are waiting for the magic of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to like somehow inspire them. And it's, it doesn't happen unless you prepare. One of the great theologians of the 20th century, Rabbi Joseph E. Soloveitchik, wrote that there can be no holiness without preparation. Like, what aspect of your life, Scott, or any of our lives could ever be awesome if we just sort of walked into it, right? We would never walk into an interview without preparing, finding out what kind of questions we're going to be asked. We would never, you know, walk into a test. When I took the bar exam, I prepared for months. And here we walk into some of the most important events of our lives completely unprepared. So I wrote the book, very, you know, tidbits, every day, five-minute preparation for 40 days, because 40 is an important number in Judaism. The 40 days before Yom Kippur, holiest day on the year, read just a five-minute entry. Answer the personal challenge question, which personalizes that teaching of the day. And so it can serve as a sort of spiritual diary leading up to the high holidays. It's interesting because in so I think one of the biggest things that people argue is that you know people that the problem of evil is the reason to not believe in God. But it's interesting because oftentimes suffering leads people to faith as often as it leads people away from faith. And you in the beginning, you have this great entry called Making Music with What Remains. Where you talk about using, you know, kind of the lemons to lemonade kind of thing, right? Where, where, where you're actually instructing folks on how they can find faith in the midst of suffering and struggle, right? Yeah, because it's a great point you just made, by the way, that there's no question that faith and suffering is the number one challenge to faith. But it's also, as you just said beautifully, what brings people to a relationship with God. So I tell the story about Yitzhak Perlman, who contracted polio at the age of four. He had to wear metal braces and use crutches his whole life. But when he came on stage once and he was tuning his violin, he was a great <clears throat> violinist, one of the strings snapped. And instead of doing what most musicians would do, which was just call for another violin or another string, he just continued to play the whole concert on three strings, right? Anyone's listening, a violin has four strings. So <laughs> when, he finished, when he was finished, the crowd gave him this huge standing ovation. And when they asked him, what happened up there? And he said, and I love this line, he says, our task is to make music with what remains. And there's a great um, sort of uh, acronym for the month, the, the, the holiest month on the Hebrew calendar is called Elul. It's the month that comes right before the high holidays. And we're supposed to use this month to really prepare ourselves spiritually. But the word Elul, which is the Hebrew letters, Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed, if you reverse the order, it spells Lule, which means if only no, if only things were not the way they were. And I like to say that much of the rest of the year, we live a, a Lule kind of existence, where we say to ourselves, if only things were not the way they are, right? If my life... My life would be so much better if only I got a bigger break at work, if only I was smarter, if I, only, if I was better looking, if only I – if, 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 if. And you know what? Elul, this month before the high holidays, comes along and says, you got it backwards. You have exactly what you need. God intended for that string to break. Okay? He knows that four strings is the best way to play a violin, but he gave you three. Let's see what you can do with three because – 
the great Kabbalists and the mystics teach this, that each of our souls comes into this world with a need for spiritual perfection. And it comes in with certain strengths and certain deficiencies. Those deficiencies are necessary to get us where we need to be in life. So that flat tire you had on the way to, to, to work that made you late for the big deal, that was supposed to happen. And that was supposed to be learned from. And we're supposed to try to figure out how to do the best that we can do with three strings, not four. I have friends, some friends who've been in recovery, and one of the phrases they, they use in recovery, they tell me, is fake it till you make it. Yeah. And the idea, like I've heard some people say that they tell them, get to 90 meetings in 90 days. And you have this <laughs> section called Smile that reminded me of this, where you say it's the outside actions. It's not often inside out that we change. It's outside in. Yeah. That basically you got to show up. you got to play the game, right? It's what you're saying. you got to like – don't wait till you feel like you want to um, act in virtuous or holy ways. Start acting, and maybe you'll change, right, On the ins- from the outside yeah. in. I think Maimonides, uh, the great Jewish philosopher, was the greatest comp- uh, proponent of that uh, perspective. He was essentially a behavioralist in his psychological orientation, meaning if you engage in activity A, B, and C, it's going to have this impact on you, as opposed to, I'll engage in activity A, B, and C if I feel like it. Otherwise, I'm just a hypocrite. Otherwise, I'm, 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 I'm allowing myself to do something I don't really believe in. Well, how do you develop your beliefs, actually? This really begs the, 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 the basic question. We become, we are basically the product of our actions. You know, you remember the French philosopher Descartes who said, I think, therefore I am. I, I would argue that we, we behave and therefore we are. Yeah, Maimonides here is, is also like along with Aquinas is shaped by Aristotle here, right? Who's the great behaviorist. And, um, and that's, you're right. I think it does seem like a deeper, more practical approach. And, and do you see this as a rabbi? Like, is that like, you, you know, is that how you approach things as a yeah, rabbi? You just tell people, just show up. I try to, listen, I, I, I engage people philosophically all the time, as you do also, Scott, you know, and we love to talk philosophy, but you know, a lot of it's pie in the sky. The bottom line is what do you do? And if you really want to develop yourself in a certain kind of way, then that's, you know, I act and therefore I am. And that's really what our approach at MGE is, is to, is to encourage and inspire people to behave in a certain way, to take on certain rituals and, and, and good habits and good best practices, because that's what builds us into the people we become. And do you, is there, is it kind of like, is there a great satisfaction in you just existentially, like when you see someone get it, when they've been showing up for a while, and then they start to really believe, and then they, they realize they get it? Yeah, because you start seeing the person's personality affected positively. You start seeing their outlook changing, but it's, it's happening because of what they're doing, because of their day, because they're waking up in the morning and saying, thank you, God, for, for you know, you could say, become grateful. But how do you become a grateful person? We all know that grateful people are happier people. That happens only by practicing gratitude, by actually ritualizing the activity of being grateful, just forcing yourself, like you said, act as if. You know, I know, I know you've had A.J. Jacobs, the great writer on your podcast. Um, he's been on this podcast, too. And I remember he wrote a book on gratitude largely from the year of living biblically because he just was praying all these prayers all day. <laughs> and he just became a more grateful person because yeah. he was praying all day. 
I love that book and I loved what he did, Scott, because, you know, he wasn't necessarily feeling it. He had this like curiosity. What would it, what would it feel like to live biblically for a whole year? So he just started doing biblical things. And then and when I asked him on the podcast, on my, on my session with him, which was great, I said, what did it do for you? He said, well, it made me this, it made me feel that. All of a sudden, these feelings come out. Now, there's very little in the Torah about feelings in the Bible. It's all about activities. The Bible is all do this and don't do that. Where's the feeling? Well, the feelings come after the activities. You have a section in the book that I think is so timely. It's it's maybe, I mean, the whole book is very relevant to everyday life. But the thing that I thought was one of the most timely is is a section where you, an entry, you say playing the ball, not the person. And it, you're, you're talking about how to deal with colleagues and friends or congregation members we disagree with. And in a polarized cancel culture, right? Where everybody, it, you know, it just, it just seems like we're the more, more and more tribal every day. Yeah. I mean, this to me is one of the arts of living in a pluralist society, right? Where people are disagreeing all the time. If, if we don't get this right, Scott, it's just, we're going to just continue down this road. And it's a, it's not a good road to travel where we just basically push away those with whom we disagree. And we're surrounding ourselves more and more with people just in this echo chamber. We defriend them. We don't want to bother. Just give me someone that can confirm what I believe to be the truth. And nobody grows that way. So when I was in high school, I used to play a lot of basketball. And my coach noticed that, you know, sometimes the guy with the ball would get around me. And he saw Mark. He said, You're pay dude, stop paying so much attention to the person. Pay attention to the ball. Because the ball is what you need to guard. It's not the person. The person's going to move their head back and forth, try to trick you. So I use that as a little of a metaphor. Pay attention to what people are saying, not the person. One of the reasons we're canceling people is because we get so upset and angry at the person. We're personalizing these debates and these arguments. And I get it. I, I, I feel very strongly about what I believe in. And it, and it hurts me sometimes emotionally when another person doesn't, doesn't agree but you know what? The Talmud is filled with debates and arguments between rabbis who vehemently had disagreed, but they still were friends. They were still colleagues. And we got to figure out the same way. You know, and I grew up doing that. I grew up with Republicans and Democrats. I worked for a liberal Democrat, Senator Patrick Ma Daniel Moynihan. Oh, wow. One of the great legends of the oh. Senate. Oh, he was great. And, and he... He was unbelievable because he was definitely on the left, but like he was so well respected in more conservative circles. And those were his friends. I used to see them coming into the office and they really had uh, a, a collegiality, a, a respect. That's it. They had respect for each other and their differing views on fundamental issues. And we got to get back to that place. Yeah, it's interesting as, as, as you know, we're talking about your book. I, I, I wonder like, I, I know you're you're writing this for Jewish readers and Jewish ears, but I'm thinking there might be some Christian clergy listening to this who might be stealing sermons from you. Here. <laughs> <laughs> flattery, flattery, Scott, best form. You know what is it? What's the expression? Uh, flattery is, 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 is imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? Thank you. I so they just put no you in the sermon, you know, copyright <laughs> Rabbi Mark Wilds. <laughs> you don't have, have to quote me. You know what I mean? No, but I mean that in all seriousness. I, I imagine. Um, I imagine for listeners that aren't Jewish, you're thinking, oh, okay, this is interesting. Like, but I imagine like a Christian could sit and read this 
because the Hebrew Bible is the first, is the major part of the Christian sacred text. I mean, it's much larger than the New Testament. So I can imagine just a Christian reading this book and often, and, and also finding it devotionally helpful. Uh, first of all, I think it could be helpful for any Christian, for you know, um, just on a personal spiritual level, and certainly a pastor who's looking to inspire their community. I think this is a great, these little insights, you know, we're living in a day and age where we can't overload our constituents and our congregants with too much information. So that's why there are 40 different little pieces. And I'm sure that Christian theology has much to say. I know it has much to say on a lot of these topics. So you could kind of mix it up you know, and, and take what I've written and they can add to it on their own if they would like. I just went to the Bible Museum in um, in Washington. Scott, have you oh, ever very, been? Yeah, yeah, very cool place. Great museum. We were supposed to go to Israel, but st- travel plans got messed up So because of COVID. So we ended up bringing our group to Washington. The Bible Museum, I got to tell you, was like the highlight of the trip. And it was so well done. And it had like the Old Testament, it had the New Testament, and it really had something for everyone. Uh, I thought it was great, and um, I hope that this book can be helpful for my brothers and sisters outside of the Jewish faith, because we're all on a journey, and we're all trying to get plugged into God in a world that is increasingly uh, forgetful or, I don't want to say the word, ashamed (laughs) to to talk about God. Um, I think that this is... This could be really helpful for people. And whenever you read it, I mean, I wrote it for the pre-high holidays, but the truth is like the first 20 out of the 40 are all insights that pertain to all year round. They're not really, you know, particular to the high holiday season, honestly. Well, and I think you do model something nicely. I want to get into a few more um, vignettes sections of the book, but I think you model something nicely about how to live in the Bible in everyday life. I think, I think for the average congregant, um, in in Jewish or Christian circles, the Bible can be very. Uh, it's intimidating. It's got this leather bounding. It looks at you know. It's like oh my god, like this is where you know this kind of language and the begats and the this and the ites and the idionites, Jebusites and this you know like. So you know you're kind of getting people into it, you know, in a way that hey, this is really practical. And I think also sometimes for preachers and rabbis, it's like man, where do I go with this text? This is and you give some nice models of like hey, look. These texts are about everyday reality. This is not pie in the sky. I mean, it's it's written in a different time and place, but they, but even though it's it's it, its context is rooted at a particular time, it, these are timeless truths. Yeah, you said that beautifully, Scott. Um, you should consider doing this. <laughs> you said that beautifully. It, it is an intimidating work. As popular as the Bible has been, it's intimidating for people. Um, and what I tried to do, and I did this in my first book also, is to kind of not dumb it down. That's the last thing I want to do. I want to bring those messages to people's lives. But you got to remember that this book was given to man. It was given to people for their everyday lives. So if we don't figure out a way of distilling these concepts and making them alive for real people for everyday life, then we're missing the whole point of the Bible. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think a lot of people are critical of people like Joel Osteen or people like that, right? Um, oh, I love Joel Osteen. But the guy does a great job, right? Like it, it, he, does a, he does a great job. He's engaging and he's giving over messages that are also positive and uplifting, which is very important. I was in Houston visiting some family, and I I was waiting for someone to pick me up, and I actually I had to use, I used the restroom, so I was I was at a Starbucks next to his church, and I went in and used the restrooms there, and I'll tell you. They're first class. I mean, they're first class. <laughs> it was like being at the Hilton. Um, oh, wow. 
So, so anger is something everybody has to deal with, right? We all like, you know, some of us are angrier personalities than others, but it just, you can't get away from it. Right. I mean, the, the everybody every day, or, or if not every day, at least every week experiences some anger. And sometimes it's at people that are at work. Sometimes it's at our closest relationships, you know, spouses or children or parents. So tell me, you, you talk a little bit about Abraham Lincoln and, and, what we can learn from from Lincoln about getting angry. So give us a lesson on anger here. So I'm actually trying to find it in the book right now where I... I, I, I think it's on page 20. Oh, you're the man. So I, I told this story about Abraham Lincoln because I'm a huge Lincoln fan, but he had this thing called a hot letter. And he disciplined himself basically to express his anger every time he was angry at someone by writing a letter, which helped him cool down. And then he would sign at the bottom of the letter, never sent, never signed. <laughs> kind of like you and I, Scott, it's like you and I writing an email and just like not pressing send. Because what it did was it got, it, it, it allowed him to vent. Um, and there are a couple of things that we can do because I don't need to tell your listeners how destructive anger can be. Everybody knows how it's destroyed people's lives. Okay. Uh, my favorite example is actually Ben Carson who had a terrible, terrible anger issue as a child. And because he, he was able to control it and figure out a way of getting a handle on it, he, he had this incredibly successful life. Um, so one suggestion um, is to take a deep breath. And I know that sounds very trite, but breathing slowly in through the nose, out the mouth actually helps us calm down. Uh, it activates our parasympathetic nervous system, which helps the body relax. And it's useful it's a useful tool to, that can be used in any surrounding. Um, I quote uh, uh, Mitch Abram, who's uh, Dr. Mitch Abram, a clinical psychologist who helps athletes working through their anger issues, which, which, by the way, I mean, we all know stories of athletes who just couldn't continue on because of, right? And the same thing applies to emails and texts and Facebook. And, you know, I, I got an, ang an email that made me very, very angry, and I started instinctively to type away and I started feeling really good. I can't wait to press send. And I thank God I didn't send it. I, it would have been the end of that relationship. And I showed it to a colleague or I wait, or you just wait, wait an hour, look at the email in an hour, just keep it there before you press send, take a couple of breaths or follow what Lincoln did, write a letter, <laughs> right? Don't send it. But it made, made you feel a little better. And you can share some of that. Uh, he did another thing, by the way, which is you do need to get it off your chest, though. This is very important. See, because what I've just said is a little symptomatic. If you want to get to the underlying issue, you do need to actually tell your friend what's upsetting you. But there's a way to do it. First of all, privately. And you never, God forbid, embarrass another person. And there is a, a, a biblical command of correcting one's neighbor. It's in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17 which teaches us to say something when we feel offended. We shouldn't just write it off because if we sweep it under the rug, it's going to fester and it's going to- It goes somewhere, right? That like, it goes somewhere. And, and, and anger, it's, 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 it's compounded interest, right? I mean, it just kind of festers. But you need to know that it can be controlled. You need to know. And some of the greatest rabbis, I don't know if you've heard of this rabbi, the Chafetz Chaim, he was, uh, he was nicknamed the, the lover of life the desire of life. And he lived in uh, Poland in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He was one of the most genteel, sensitive, rabbinic personages 
of the 19th century, and he related how he had anger issues. And he would sometimes be seen by his students late at night speaking to himself, trying to control his rage. There's another great Hasidic master, Reb Nachman of Breslov. Uh, when I mention that name in terms of anger, everybody thinks I'm making it up because he, he also is like one of these like saintly figures. But he worked his entire life on anger until he merited to get to a point where less and less upset him. Um, so my, my advice, and I say this in the book, is to focus on actions that calm us down. Wait before sending that next email. Get it off your chest. And remember that great people struggle with this, and they've been successful. I, I tell you, there's, there's, um, there's um, a book by a Catholic priest called Life of the Beloved, um, Henri Nouwen, very famous priest. And it was actually a secular Jewish friend said, can you tell me about faith? And he just had these a few basic words that were the books. And one of the words that he said is faith is all about is broken. Mm. And you know, Yom Kippur is like probably like the, the religious Super Bowl for the Jewish year, right? I mean, this is this is the big year, right? This is the big game liturgically. You have this beautiful section where you talk about the broken heart is one of the mo most important qualities. Uh, that's you know, we hear broken heartedness and we think romance, but you're talking about broken heartedness. It almost sounds like. Do you mean like vulnerability? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. I, I mean vulnerability. I mean contrition, humility, just being honest before God and just recognizing that God knows who we are. He knows the frailties and the challenges that we all have. You know, he knows it better than even our closest spouse does. And therefore, there's nothing more powerful that we can bring before God on our holy day of the year, Yom Kippur, or whatever the, the holiest day on the Christian calendar is. Whenever it is, a broken heart. And that's why, um, you know, I, I tell this story about a little girl who walks into a nine-year-old girl. It's a true story. She walks into a store in Israel, in Jerusalem, to buy a bracelet. And she looks through the glass display case, and she points to this beautiful um, piece of jewelry uh, that costs about 16,000 shkollin, which is about $4,000. And... Um, you know, she's a nine-year-old kid, and she points to it, and the owner of the store says, do you want to buy that? And she said, yeah. Well, you have very good taste, the owner says. And she says, who do you want to buy that for? And she says, well, it's for my older sister. She says, you know, the owner asks, well, why do you want to buy such a beautiful bracelet for your older sister? Well, I don't have a father or a mother. My older sister takes care of all of us. And so all of my siblings, we all got together to collect money to buy her a present. And she then pulls out a handful of coins. The jeweler counts it up, amounts to seven shkollim, 80 agarots, about $2. <laughs> and the store owner was visibly moved. And he said to her, you're in luck. That's exactly what the bracelet costs. And he hands her the bracelet. Now, literally later in the day, the older sister shows up with the bracelet and says, this was a mistake. And what did the owner say? He said, no. He says, what are you talking about? It's paid in full. Paid in full. Seven shkollin, 80 agarot, and he said, and a broken heart. Mm. And the store owner said, you know, my wife died a couple of years ago. And people come into the store every day and they buy expensive bracelets and jewelry. When your little sister walked in and she wanted to buy you something special, 
She showed me all the money she collected from your siblings. It was literally the first time since my wife died I could remember what it really means to love someone. So I gave her the bracelet and I wished her well. And I, I like to share the story, Scott, because on Yom Kippur, we make a lot of requests from God. And it's not only in Yom Kippur, and it's not just Jews. All of us are always begging God for something. And we turn to God and we ask him for good health. We ask him for help to earn a good livelihood. And then we reach into our pockets to see what we've got to pay for those beautiful blessings. And then we realize maybe we have a few merits. We pull out a few shkalim, a few dollars, a mitzvah here, a mitzvah there. Maybe we gave some charity to the poor. Maybe we called someone who was lonely during COVID, right? We took some classes. We studied the Bible a little. But we really don't have what it takes to actually pay God for all of those blessings that we're always asking God for. But we do have one thing. And the sages, the Jewish sages teach, it's something which we should never underestimate, and that is a broken heart. And that's a beautiful verse from the book of Psalms. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those crushed in spirit. If you come before God sincere, it makes all the difference. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful thing. I mean, that's I thought that was really moving. You talk about friendship in the book. You know, there's a there's a great um, theologian at Yale, Miroslav Volf, and I think he said that when we're when we're sinned against, our first move is we exclude um, we exclude the person that wounded us from the fellowship of humanity, and we exclude ourselves from the table of sinners. And we kind of you know we get self righteous, and we you know we we, we put whatever we do. And it's very often like when somebody else does something wrong, they had bad motives. But when we did it, oh, of course we were, of course we had good reasons to. And you just have this section called keeping friends. And you talk about the importance of giving people some grace and giving them yeah. the benefit of the doubt. And I just think as I think about that, this is like if people just took that to heart, how many more relationships and marriages and friendships and congregations would be saved? You know, we're you know, people go to war sometimes in congregations over yeah. some kind of building fund or something. And, and how do you, you know, how do you, how, how do you give people grace? I mean, could you say something to that? Yeah, it's, you got to look at the whole person. That's one of the things that I like to teach. And, and it's such a good topic for us to talk about, Scott, because there are a lot of broken relationships like marriages and friendships and even within congregations, and I'm sure within the church, I know there are synagogues that fight with each other or within a, a particular temple or synagogue. We have to learn to look at the whole person. There's a very beautiful teaching in the Ethics of Our Fathers, which is a part of rabbinic literature, that says that we give, we look, we when we we give people the benefit of the doubt, but it says habedan, it's kol ha'adam, that's the Hebrew for we judge the entire person meritoriously. Mm, and mm. I would tell people, pull the lens back. Because right now you're angry that your friend Joe just said A or just did B. But remember what Joe did for you six months ago. And remember how good of a friend he was when you lost your job. And remember what he, like, if you could just pull the lens back. And I'm not saying to ignore the nasty comment he just made or what he was supposed to do and didn't do. But try to take that error Try to take that sin, if you will, and put it within the context of all the wonderful things about Joe. And if we can do that, we can hold on to more relationships and we can be a little more forgiving because, you know, uh, like you said it before, we, you know, we're very quick to find excuses for ourselves, but sometimes we're a little tough on our friends. 
um, and we have high hopes and high expectations, and we we are let down. But if we could pull the screen back a little, pull pull the uh, vid- the camera back, I like to say, and look at the whole person, I think we'll just do so much better. Rabbi, how do you keep? You're you're a guy that you're a busy guy. Uh, you 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 know. I know a little bit about your lifestyle, and it's, it's intense. You know, you're a New York rabbi that's got a dynamic faith community. How how do you keep your own personal spiritual fire alive because you're a guy that's passionate and you're clear you clearly have a deep personal faith and and sadly i mean i hear stories of lots of clergy that burn out you know that they just you know that really they 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 they, they lose their their passion for spirituality for god and and how do you in the midst of the kind of sturm und drang and 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 the rat race that is new york city how do you keep kind of a, a joyful faith so first of all i struggle with it I do burn out here and there, <laughs> I want you to know, but I, I stay in the game. I've been doing this a long time because I do have certain activities that keep me plugged in. Number one, first and foremost, is my family. And without them, there's no way I could have continued all these years doing that. Number two, spiritual burnout happens also because the preacher, the pastor, the rabbi, the priest is not growing themselves. That is really hard. I have to tell you, I struggle because I'm constantly having to think of things to inspire other people, but they don't always – now, I usually only share things that inspire myself, but I've heard them before. I need something new and different. So I try to study. Judaism is a very study-focused kind of faith system. Um, My two oldest sons, I have a 24-year-old son and a 21-year-old son. They're both really smart, learned guys, and I learn with them. Uh, each of them at least two, three times a week. And we're studying like heavy, you know, like material. And I really, I love that. Uh, That really inspires me. Um, And I would say also I get a lot of working out from my students. There's a beautiful line somewhere in the ethics of our fathers that more from my teachers, I learn from my students. Because when I, you know, when I teach, they are, engaged and they have questions and they push back and that pushback really challenges me i think there's a lot of burnout when you don't feel challenged you can't feel too challenged because <laughs> you'll get knocked over but you need to be you need a little pushback or else it's just like the same old so uh, you know to answer your question i would say uh, family and i would say spiritual growth of your own and that's different for everybody. You know what? I mean, I'll ask you, Scott, what keeps you pumped spiritually? You know, like what makes you feel spiritually alive? Yeah, I would say the similar thing. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think um, studying, like staying rooted in scripture. First of all, I think scripture is is just, um, it's, it's, it's a stream of living water. You know, what does the psalmist say? If you, if you plant your, your, a tree next to, you know, the river, it's going to grow. And, you know, the scriptures are like that. Yeah. And I also think that that dialogical thing too, I think is right. I mean, I think the art of spiritual friendship, when you find people that know you, that are, that can challenge you, that can understand you, that you can think through like mysteries of the of faith with and, and life. Yeah. I think that's, that's, um, you know, and those, it's interesting too, because I'm curious, like when you're on vacation or something, is there a particular rabbi or, or are there congregations you kind of look forward to going to because to, yeah. to get your own yeah. soul fed i do there was there's this one rabbi in the five towns that um it's actually two different rabbis there that i go 
to listen to. One, his name is Rabbi Moshe Weinberger, um, who's a brilliant, brilliant speaker. And there's another rabbi, uh, Rabbi Chasinoff. And these are rabbis I really look up to and I respect. Uh, I have a lot of mentors also. I don't know, Scott, how many, um, you know, but I've been blessed with a lot of amazing mentors. My main teacher and mentor is Rabbi Dr. Jacob J. Schachter, who's a brilliant historian and Jewish philosopher, and he's the head of the history department at Yeshiva University. He helped me actually begin MGE, Manhattan Jewish Experience. Oh, wow. And he's a dear, close, personal teacher and mentor of mine. And um, I got a lot of, you know, spiritual and emotional support from him as well. You need teachers because you can't simply be the teacher for other people because then you'll just stop learning. You'll stop growing yourself. And, um, you know, I thought you were going to ask me when I go on vacation, like, what books do I bring with me? <laughs> well, you can say that if you want. I mean, it's not the 40-day challenge. Okay? What else, right? It's a great beat read, you know? Rabbi Wilds, it is a great book, and I, I hope I'd encourage all our listeners to grab a copy. Again, whatever faith tradition you're in, it's just um, it's just a kind of thing where we're just spending a few minutes a day. I mean, this is not, you know, um, you're not parsing out Maimonides in Hebrew here. You're, you're reading some meaningful but brief reflections, which really could change your life. And so, Rabbi... Thanks for writing the book, and thanks for spending some time talking with me about it's it. It's my honor. If anybody wants to take the 40-day challenge, if you just go on the MG website, there's a click that says Take the Challenge. Just go on jewishexperience.org. You can just click on there and to take the challenge, and it'll tell you how to get the book and how to just start reading because I think this is really something for everyone. Absolutely. Thanks so much. This was fantastic. God, it was an honor, my friend. Thank you so much.